Welcome to the Enabled Disabled Podcast. I'm your host, Gustavo Serafini. I was born with a rare physical disability called PFFD. My journey has been about self-acceptance, persistence, and adaptation. On the show, we'll explore how people experience disability, how the stories we tell ourselves can both enable and disable, how vulnerability is the foundation for strength, and why people with disabilities can contribute more than we imagine. I hope that leaders, companies, clinicians, families, and friends will better understand our capacity to contribute to the world and help enable us to improve it. In today's episode, we spoke with Christina Ryan. Christina is the founder of the Disability Leadership Institute. As a lifelong advocate, Christina has fought to end violence against women and women with disabilities. Her dedication and experience has given her a wealth of insight at the local level and globally as part of the United Nations. Christina's current work is focused on training the new generation of leaders in the disability community. In our conversation, we didn't focus on Christina's disability experience. We focus on her work and what it's taught her about how we can improve the world for people with disabilities. Christina's work is inspiring and impactful. I encourage you to listen and actively engage with her ideas. If you want to learn more about Christina or get involved with the Disability Leadership Institute, you can find her at disabilityleaders.com or you can check out our website at www.enabledisabled.com for more information. Enjoy the episode. I really appreciate you being here. I am honored that you took the time, um, especially since we haven't we haven't known each other previously. So this is just it's a great honor for me, and I want to let's just dive right in. So. Tell me, Indeed. tell me about your, tell me about your work. Tell me how you started and let's, let's start there then. So how did you start your work with disability rights and, and speaking out for women who have, who have disabilities in the community? Oh, well, uh, um, I got disabled, I suppose. <laughs> so I've got a, um, a long history. I've spent most of my life doing, um, uh, women's movement, the feminist movement, and uh, gender equality work. And then um, when I became a disabled person, I kind of shifted that across into the disability space. So um, becoming a member of Women with Disabilities Australia was a natural first step for me. Um, and that's the big national representative organisation in Australia for disabled women. And I've been part of that organisation now for 25 years, which is almost all of its life, not quite, but almost all of its life. And it's been a wonderful thing. Um, it's given me um, contact with an amazing network of, of other women. Um, it's really helped me to understand my own experience of disability, but also to see what the barriers for disabled women are, what the big issues are. And because I've got a background in activism and in um, a gender equality activism, I was able to um, support the work of WIDA, which is what we, W-W-D-A, WIDA. Um, so I was able to support the work of WIDA um, using my skills and expertise as a, a change-making activist. And so I spent probably about 20 years working on uh, gender-based violence through a disability lens. Um, pretty miserable work, I'd have to say. Um, violence is the single biggest issue for disabled women all over the planet. It is our single biggest issue. We experience incredibly high levels of violence um, and marginalisation and not just uh, the sort of gender-based violence that all women experience, but um, an additional layer of violence, which is peculiar to disabled women that's targeting our disabilities. Um, so, you know, having our equipment removed or having our disability um, uh, misunderstood or deliberately aggravated um, people, um, giving us too many drugs or taking the drugs away, you know, so all sorts of things like that. It's, uh, you know, and they're just small examples. Um, 
not small examples, but there's some examples. And so it's it's very difficult work. Um, violence is hard work. It's really unpleasant um, and challenging work. Um, I've never worked at the front line particularly, but I have led teams uh, in my paid work. I've led teams of people working with people who are living in residential care or experiencing um, violence in congregate living arrangements and things like that. So it's it's a pretty difficult space. And what happened to me about five or so years ago, about now, in fact, five years ago, I had one of those moments of clarity that was quite profound and realised that we're doing a lot of work at the bottom of the cliff. You know, we're being an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. We're doing all of this work trying to change laws about violence, trying to find um, ways of making sure that women's services uh, to support women escaping violence were actually appropriate for disabled women. Um, I did work at the United Nations uh, for WIDA talking about, um, you know, gender equality for women with disabilities and uh, all of these things. And it's all kind of reacting. It's all reacting. And I realised about five years ago, nothing was changing. We'd spent 20 years uh, working on this, um, getting better and better at it, becoming more and more expert, having more and more women join us, um, having more and more politicians and uh, government agency leaders um, understanding what we were doing and becoming allies, and yet nothing was changing. And we had a couple of big exposés on television. Um, Our national broadcaster did some investigations into violence in disability residential care. And I was sitting there with my team one day in my previous job, uh, sitting there with my team, and one of them, you know, it was really upsetting. We'd watched this program and we all knew because that's what we were seeing every day. And one of them just cried out and said, why won't anyone believe us? This is what we've been telling them all this time and nobody will listen to what we're saying. And I said, that's because we're not equal people. Disabled women are not, you know, women are not equal, but disabled women are not equal people. Our voices don't matter. We're left behind. We're not in parliament. Um, We're not running organisations. We're not the people in the media. Um, We're actually quite invisible. And we're not in positions of power and decision-making. And so nothing will change until we change that. And that's when I realised that we needed to do something about leadership. So I invented the Disability Leadership Institute. Um, I'd known for some time, we'd had long conversations in the disability community in Australia and globally about the fact that we didn't have any succession planning work. Um, The movement was happening, but there was no real consistent ongoing support for people to learn how to be activists like me. There was no real um, work being done to, to make sure that we had people coming in who would develop the skills. And there was no real support, um, not just to learn the trade, but to actually take over over time. And so a very small group of us were doing a lot of the work. Uh, this is not unusual in movements. It, it's a thing. It happens. Um, so I, I, I already knew that succession planning was an issue and that we needed some consistent training and development. But then when I put that together with this sudden moment of clarity, this understanding that it was about inequality and we actually need to be in decision-making spaces, it suddenly all fell into place. So I established the Disability Leadership Institute. We're heading for our fifth birthday um, in a couple of months' time. It is global. Um, we have members in over 20 countries. Um, I stopped counting once we got to 20. I just thought, why bother counting anymore? It's lots. Um, and we do development. We do leadership um, development and we're here. So um, prior to this, what we, um, you know, when I talked to some trusted colleagues in the disability community and the disability movement, we were able to identify six 
pilot projects in Australia over 20 years. So little projects, a localised project here, a, a project there, which were called something around disability leadership. There was nothing ongoing. Um, people might do a short course and that would be it. There was nothing after that. Nothing. So people, it, it didn't really make a difference. And, and over many, many decades, there hadn't really been a change. Nothing changed. Um, so we still weren't in positions of leadership. We still weren't achieving any training that was suitable for us, that was appropriate to our needs, that understands disability. Um, something needed to be done. So that's what we aim for, is to have that consistent presence, that consistent ongoing presence of training and development, and also a community of people who are like a network. I mean, I, I like to model what we do on people like the, the Women Lawyers Network or the Company Directors Network. <laughs> There's all these other organisations that have this kind of leadership focus um, and get together and recognise that uh, marginalised communities need to understand the common experience. Um, so that's the, the sort of approach that, that I've taken with what we're doing. Um, and it's, it's still here. I, I thought I'll give it a couple of years, see what happens. Um, still here, five years later, it's growing all the time. Uh, just signing some new members up this morning before I was talking to you, Gustavo. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really exciting. Um, I love what I'm doing. I can't believe this is what I'm doing. And I, I still support my colleagues who are working the front line, dealing with violence every day. I'm still an expert in violence um, against disabled women, which is a great thing to be an expert in. Not really. Um, but, you know, you, I have expertise. It's important work, I mean, uh, Christina, and I think that yes, there's so much to unpack with what you said. So, just can I can I start with a basic question? I have a legal background here. Does Australia have a law or a set of laws that mirrors the the ADA out here in the United States? Yes and no. <laughs> to put it yes and no, uh, we have. Um, uh, Australia is divided up into states like the US, um, so we have state-level discrimination acts and there are disability discrimination acts in, in all of the states and territories. We also have a national disability discrimination act, but they're very reactive. It's up to an individual to make a complaint and then that complaint is mediated. So it's not yeah, illegal as such. There's no one who's going to come in and impose or um, insist on measures being taken. Um, it's quite interesting. So it doesn't have the same force of law as the ADA, um, but it is our Discrimination Act. So if I'm discriminated against um, in my employment or in service provision or in gaining access to uh, something, if I want to go to the theatre and, and I'm not allowed in or something, um, I can make a complaint to our Human Rights Commission and they will mediate my complaint. Mm. So usually that means getting the theatre in the same room as me and, and they say, oh, we're terribly sorry, Christina, this is really awful, we'll do something to fix it. And, of course, they either do or they don't. Um, it's not enforceable. You can take it a step further and go to court. It's quite rare because it's really arduous. Um, and people have made some gains. Uh, a particular outcome there that's probably uh, worth noting, um, when we had the Olympics in 2000, uh, the website was not an accessible website for uh, blind and vision impaired people. Mm -hmm. And somebody took the Sydney Olympics Committee to court to say it must be an accessible website, and they won. Of course they won. Um, there was not a leg to stand on. They had to, they had to do it. And so that changed. And what that did is it, it meant that suddenly government and um, big companies understood that they had to make their websites accessible. Of course, a lot of the time they still don't. Um, it's, still, it's still one of those things. But it's, so there are mechanisms in place. Um, they're not as robust as what you have over there in the US uh, with the ADA and some of the associated mechanisms. Um, 
that that helps really give some more context yeah. to why you're saying that all of these uh, laws are are were just reactive, right? Because here there's there's a more proactive and forcible element to it where if you report it, usually something happens and something is and it's enforceable. So that that really helps clear up that context um, yeah. of why everything was so reactive and you you saw so li- such little change. Well, yes and no. Um, I will make make it clear that the situation for disabled women that I outlined around violence is the same everywhere in all countries, um, and so it hasn't changed. Um, and we also have less access to uh, services and supports. Um, there's a gender disparity, and that's a global issue as well. Um, the other big global issue we have as disabled women is the lack of data collection. Um, really sexy issue, data collection, up uh, not. <laughs> so, um, but because data is, isn't collected, a lot of the time there's no data collected about the disability experience for a start. But then when it is collected, they don't break it down by gender or by uh, cultural background, for example, or race. Um, and so there's gaps we, in our understanding about the experience of disabled people. So that's also a global issue. And the work I've done at the United Nations data collection is often a very big topic of conversation for that reason. So there are some things about the Australian experience. Um, of course, we're a white, um, westernised country. Uh, in the main, we also have First Nations peoples who are quite marginalised and oppressed, of course. Um, and their disability experience is is profound. A, a good half of Indigenous Australians are disabled um, and many of them are in prison. But uh, fundamentally, we're a Western, wealthy, white country. And so our experience is not dissimilar to the US or the UK or a lot of Europe in that regard. Um, you know, being disabled here is not as difficult, for example, as it might be for my sisters in um, African countries or um, even in South America. So, you know, we need to acknowledge that. Um, that said, uh, we we also recognise the commonality of our experience internationally, and that's where violence is our number one issue. Um, there is a lot of gender-based violence that is targeted at disabled women. So um, it's not often that I have seen, in fact, I, I'm struggling to remember any cases, any discrimination complaints that have been made that are around violence. Um, usually it's around access to education or employment, employment's the big one, or other services. Um, but there's not really a lot that's done around violence. And of course, the work that the government is doing around gender-based violence we also then have to fight for disabled women to be recognised within that space. So we've got this intersecting disadvantage um, going on. So it's quite, <laughs> it's quite complicated, yeah. It's a huge task. It's a huge yeah. task. It is big. It is a lot of work. Um, and we do it because we're a collective, um, you know. That's, that's why we do it as organisations and why we do it as a movement. It, it, it's a long-term thing. Um, and, yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. So I have a lot of questions, but one one of them is I think it's so interesting when you, at least over here, when you hear about leadership training, you think I'm going to be a leader in my business or I'm going to be, you know, in the corporate world or as a, as a coach for a, a, a sporting organization, right? You, you don't think of leadership training for activism, which I think is a genius, you know, connection that you made. And I'm so happy that you're, you're offering this leadership training in all over the world because I'm super interested. Um, how did you learn, like, how did you learn to be an activist? What, what was that? What was that passion? You know, clearly that's something that you have to be passionate about because most people don't do it just to do it. It's something that you strongly believed in and cared about. So what what did that journey look like? That's that's right. You do have to be passionate. Um, 
it takes every ounce of energy you have um, to change the world. It really does. And if you're not committed, um, don't even bother starting would be my suggestion. Um, well, I, I actually come from a long line of quite, um, quite activist uh, feminist women um, dating back generations. So um, I, in, in Australia, my family is well known because my grandmother um, was quite famous for the work she did around equal pay for women. Um, and, and so I've, I've been uh, this year... In fact, my mother and I are celebrating 50 years of feminist activism together because um, she, when she started her, her journey of feminist activism, I also started. I mean, yes, I was quite small at the time. Um, so it's just been, it's almost like the family business, to be honest, which sounds a bit, a bit ridiculous and a bit weird, but it's, it is actually, um, my family are, come from a, a long line of um, labour, activists, trade unionists, and um, and when the, the women's movement started up um, in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, women in my family became very involved uh, and still are today in feminist activism. And so for me, it, it was just a natural thing to be an activist or a change maker. And, uh, and, and I simply turned that towards um, using my expertise in the disability space uh, once I became a member of the disability community. So, yeah, it's just what I do, um, really. Uh, I, that's, that's not something that you can learn in, in school or graduate school. That's no. something that you, you do learn by doing, correct? And, and from, that's right. from, from other people that are teaching you. That's right. And I, what I, I describe it as is I did the apprenticeship. Um, so I, I, I literally learnt from my grandmother, who was a a master activist, um, extremely effective activist. And I I guess I do operate similarly to her. Um, it's not something I do consciously, but, you know, the understanding I have of how to be effective, things that work, things that don't work, things you don't do, um, things that you do if you want to be really um, effective. As it, Yeah, I, I use a lot of what I learned from her, but also from my aunts, um, who are still both very active, um, and indeed my mother and my parents, my, because both my parents were activists in the union movement as well. So the whole family is, is activists of one form or another. You know, if, if something needs doing, um, you get out there and fix it. Uh, it's what you do. Anyway, in, in our family, that's how it is. Um, so that's what I've done. Yeah. That's remarkable. Most most families don't operate that way. As, as no, you know. no. I I actually had a, a really um, I have to tell you a very funny story. <laughs> so, so most families would would be uh, thrilled to have one person who is that really activist change making person. And uh, we had an interesting situation at Christmas time when my mother was caught in Sydney when uh, Sydney went into lockdown. Uh, for a short period of time, and uh, there was a, a cluster of the of the virus, and so there were a number of us doing different parts about getting her back to Canberra after the Christmas break. Um, she had to go into quarantine. There had to be all sorts of liaison with the government agencies responsible for quarantine um, that exist in Australia, etc. And I suddenly realised um, most families would be happy with one activist person. Uh, we have, a, a, like everybody, so every single member of the family was doing a bit. And, of course, periodically we all clashed because someone was doing this and someone else did it differently and it became a bit chaotic. Um, and I thought, what privilege, <laughs> what privilege to have such a wealth of expertise, even though it created chaos at that time. Um, it was a very useful thing to have. But uh, it it does make it, interesting because it means that you know you can change a system. It means that you know that you don't have to accept that the way that this is happening is, is what needs to happen. And I think that's where it, it creates a level of empowerment that doesn't exist in the broader community. And I suppose understanding that is important um, you know, as I get older and wiser, I realise that 
I have the privilege of knowing how to respond to situations in a way that many other people don't. Um, and that's okay uh, because other people are doing other things um, that I rely on them for. But, uh, you know, we don't have to accept the rules, except when it's a pandemic. <laughs> so, um, you know, there are times when the rules are important, um, when it's about, about social good, um, and that's when we all think, no, this is what we must accept. We must do these things. And so we accept the lockdown. We accept that you get tested if you have symptoms, all of those things, um, wear a mask, that stuff. Um, but there's a lot that we don't need to accept. We, we should not be accepting the absence of disabled people in decision-making. Um, that is just a sort of cultural development. It's not, it's not a you know, it's, a, it's become a cultural rule, but it's not there for any purpose except it's just grown. It's just sort of turned up um, after sort of several hundred years of keeping us locked away. Yeah. yeah. Shove us in institutions, that sort of thing. So we, we're changing the rules around what disability looks like. We're changing the rules around where we're allowed to be and where we should be. We're changing the rules around what we accept as disabled people. Um, and we're we're not accepting the sort of rubbish that we used to accept. I might have used a, a stronger word there, but I'm conscious of being polite. Um, we do a lot of swearing in Australia, um, so yeah, I have to be careful. Uh, so it's you know rules are there to be questioned. Rules are there to be adjusted as necessary. Rules are there to be used until they obviously aren't working. Um, it's when they're not working that we need to really examine them. And I think, you know, there's a lot, a lot we need to be changing in the disability community right across the planet. Um, and certainly both in the US and in Australia, there are plenty of things we need to be fixing still. Mm. I, I think it's interesting that you said it takes so much energy and so much passion to be a change maker, and yet there's the underlying belief that change can happen, that things can improve, that we can make a difference. So, did you did you did that belief come about in part from seeing your grandmother, seeing your seeing your mother, your parents, and everybody actually effectuate that change, or did the belief get stronger when you saw yourself making headway into those changes? That's actually a good question. Um, I, I think you need to have a general sense of it, optimism to be a change maker in the first place. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. Um, you know, I don't think pessimists are really change makers. They just don't think it's possible, so they give up. But um, you, so you need to have a certain amount of hope, a certain amount of optimism that that a different world is possible. You need to have a, a capacity to see what the change might be. So a certain vision. Um, that that is required. I think you're right, though, Gustavo. I think there's an element of witnessing change that helps you to entrench that belief. So yes, I have seen change happen. I mean, you know, we have equal pay in Australia because my grandmother did a bunch of work, um, and other women, of course, she didn't do it alone. And I've also done things that I've seen. Um, make a difference. Uh, so, you know, I've made a change in, in more, more ways than one over the years. So you do understand that it's possible because it's, it's happened. It has been done. Yeah. I think if, if you spent decades bashing your head against a wall, which is what change is about, and nothing changed, um, if we were still in institutions, if we were still not expected to work, if we were still... Um, an embarrassment to society um, and, you know, there was still um, an expectation that disabled people were, you know, not seen and not heard, um, that we were an embarrassment, then I think it would be a very different equation. Um, but we've seen such change in the last 40 years um, that we know that there's movement um, of course, that said, I will acknowledge that in some countries um, where my sisters are in the disability movement, um, they are still 
hidden away um, and they're an embarrassment. So it's, uh, you know, we're not there yet. <laughs> We've got a long way to go, but we have come a long way. Um, and we are starting to see some things, uh, something that's really exciting to me just in the five years that we've had the Disability Leadership Institute going, um, the language has shifted. And I, I mean, when I first started, the term disability leadership didn't exist. It was, it was actually not a thing. And, and now it is. It's actually used by people. And I get no more excited than when something comes at me in, on LinkedIn from someone I've never heard of and they're using my language and I think, oh, <laughs> that's so <laughs> exciting. Um, that's exciting. But the other thing that's more exciting than that, um, that's a change in language and to change language is to change people's bigger sense of subconscious thinking. So that's great. But the big change, of course, is, is moving into positions of leadership and we are seeing a recognition that disabled people should be in politics. We should be running for politics and positions of, of authority. We should be leading corporations and sitting on boards. We should be in the media as other media workers, not, you know, just because we're a disabled person. Um, we should be seen in films and on television. You know, we should be seen um, in, in entertainment. We should be, and there's a huge movement um, in the US led, led by some terrific activists around um, visibility in, uh, uh, disvisibility. Um, it's a hashtag, look it up if you haven't seen it, hashtag disvisibility. Um, and it's around making sure that, that disabled people are actually seen. Um, now, that said, we all know in the disability community that only a small proportion of us are obvious, um, that, are, that we are visible by looking at us. Um, most of us are not visible by looking at us, but visibility is around um, the fact that it is okay to be openly identifying as a disabled person. That's visibility. The ability to get up as a lecturer, as a professor, the ability to get up as a judge or a lawyer, the ability to get up as, as um, a TV anchor or a journalist on the street and say, you know, to, to talk from the experience of disability, to have that as part of who you are. In the same way that we expect for people of colour, for First Nations people, um, for people of different genders. You know, we need to be comfortable in seeing disability in all parts of this of society. And we're a long way short of seeing it in the numbers we need to see it, but there's a shift on, and that shift is really important. It is critical. Um, to go with that, we actually need to make sure that disabled people are supported to do that stuff. We're still marginalised. We still don't have the same access to education. We still don't have the same access to workplace training and development. So those sorts of things need to step up as well. Um, we, we can't just expect people to emerge fully formed and suddenly do something leadershipy um, if, if they've had no mentoring, no support, no backing. Um, so all of those things have to happen in the way they've happened for other marginalised communities. So there's um, a lot of work to do. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I'll be finished anytime soon. Unfortunately not. But so what, what is, what is your vision though for the next, you know, for the next five or 10 years, what does the, how do we accelerate the journey? How do we make it more effective and how do we, you know, maybe, maybe in the next 10 years, right. You can sit back and, and you can look at your, look at the work that you've helped inspire and create and say, we really have come a long way. Like, yes, it's still a problem, but we've really done something here. What, what needs to happen in order for that to become a reality? Oh, I'd, I'd love to think that I can um, sit back in 10 years. That would be fantastic. I'm not, I'm not holding my breath on that one. Um, one of the things that I'm pushing for right now um, is succession planning. There's, there's, there's this mob called the Valuable 500 um, run by uh, a woman by, uh, called Carolyn who comes out of the UK. And she did some research and what they've identified is that over 90% of companies say that disability diversity is important. Less than 4%, less than 4% are actually 
doing something about it. So, you know, the gap is wide. Um, so I've, I've started talking about succession planning. And when I meet with CEOs and chairs and uh, people who are in positions of authority, politicians, I've started asking them, who is coming after you? What we know from business and management research, people like Harvard Business and Stanford, those sorts of people, is that the average tenure for a CEO is about five to eight years. Now, we've been battling away in the disability community for about four decades. How are we not seeing any change when the average tenure is five to eight years? So every single person in a position of a, a, a position of leadership and authority should be looking at who is coming after them. They don't all have power over who is appointed after them, but they can certainly influence it and they can certainly mentor people in the old-fashioned way that succession planning happens. That's how all the white blokes do it. They mentor people into their positions of on the board to be chair, moving up in the management team to be the CEO. That's how they do it. So we need to have a similar type of structure, I reckon, um, to have a, a more rapid change. We could see significant change inside five and certainly inside 10 years if we move to a more succession planning model, if we recognise that mentoring, that taking, you know, identifying high potential people and taking them under their wing and actually making it happen, if that is done, if there's a commitment to doing that, we will see significant change in that time. We may not achieve the 15% globally that we're aiming for. We are 15% of the global population, folks. 1.3 billion people. We are the largest minority group on the planet. And we're almost entirely that's amazing. Invisible. That's amazing to think about because most it's people shocking. Don't, don't see it that way. They certainly don't. They think we're very small numbers of people in corners. No, we're not. We're the largest minority group on the planet. So 15%. Now, we know that it's actually a low figure because many countries don't have good data collection. In westernised countries, the figure is about 20% of the population. So we're not going to achieve that perhaps in that five to 10 years, but we can certainly see significant change in that time. In the same way that we have seen a change in the numbers of women moving into leadership positions because somebody made the decision that it would happen. So it's about political will. It's about corporations, about CEOs and boards making a decision to make a difference. They've done it with women. Well, let's get moving on disability. Is it? Is, is part of that picture, obviously, it has to be education opportunities, right? It has to be um, letting people with disabilities actually, I had this conversation recently with somebody, participate, not just, not just as, you know, a participation trophy, but to really participate and learn how to get good at something and be allowed to develop, right, their skills that they're actually good at. That's certainly a part of the equation. I'm also wondering how much of a part of the equation do, you know, people like me who I have a disability, I've never been involved with the disability community until now. I've just, you know, I wanted to be a good person and live a, and live a good life as a good citizen and help the people that I come into contact with. And I realized about a year ago, maybe two years ago, that that no longer felt good enough. So I, I, think that there's, I think that there's a huge opportunity for people who have disabilities, who have had some type, of, some type of career, some type of success, let's say, to say, look, what, you know, what can we do? What can we do to, to improve things that we haven't been, that we've been shutting ourselves off from? That's a, an excellent question because... One of the interesting things that governments have fallen um, short on as far as policy goes, and it seems to be the case globally, is the push keeps happening around just getting us a job. 
you know, we... We are underemployed. That you know, disabled people are underemployed. We we're not employed in nearly the sorts of numbers we should be. Um, you know, in Australia, about half of us live on the pension. We're not actually in jobs, um, and the figure is not that different globally. You know, in in countries like the US, there's a similar picture. And so, governments have literally focused on entry level employment. The assumption that goes with that is that disabled people are not educated, have never worked, actually need to be given a start. What we know is that that's actually not the case. Yes, there's a large cohort of people in that category, but there's also a very large chunk of people who are highly skilled, have good qualifications, have employment expertise and experience and board expertise and experience, governance expertise, but they're not welcome. Hmm. And, um, you know, I, I hear terrible stories all the time. People send me private messages on a regular basis. Um, you know, they might be a partner in a global firm, one of the big global corporate firms. The minute their disability became open, out the door. Wow. Now, that person has a wealth of expertise. They've got to be a partner. You know, they, they know their stuff. Um, and suddenly they're not, not valuable anymore. What? You know, so we actually have enough people in the disability community today who could be moving into positions of management, of responsibility, um, who could be moving into positions of leadership and, um, you know, change-making like CEOs, executive teams, board members, um, politicians. We have plenty of people who could be doing this. It's, it's the, the same argument that used to be used for women um, back in the 80s. You know, there are no women who are qualified. And, of course, there were plenty of women who were qualified. They just weren't in the same networks as the men. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, we're still dealing with that one. We haven't quite got over that hurdle yet, but, you know, we're a hell of a long way further along than we were back in the 80s. The p position for disabled people is not dissimilar. So there are plenty of people, they're just not being given the opportunities. They're not being appointed to boards. They're not being appointed to executive leadership teams. They're certainly not being chosen or selected to run for public office. Um, they're not being appointed as judges. It's, it's, you know, the people are there, but they're not getting the appointments. Um, a lot of that is prejudice. A lot of that is around the path that people take. They may not have the same career path as the, um, the white blokes who get the jobs, um, the non-disabled white blokes who get the jobs. Um, so a lot of it is around our assumptions around what a career path should look like, what a CV should look like. Um, and in fact, people of diversity, it doesn't matter what diversity it is, are going to have a different CV. We're going to have a different path because we've actually had to work through different barriers and we've probably come through a different educational path as well. Of course, that only applies to the people who were disabled before their education hit. You know, the, you know there are people whose disabilities don't turn up until, you know, they might be in their, their 30s or their 40s. Well, you know, they've got their education. They could be doing stuff. Um, they're, they're overcoming other barriers and we don't overcome disabilities. We just address barriers. I'll make that very clear before I get into the ableist bullshit. Um, so there's some, you know, there's some real prejudice in the broader community around what disabled people look like, around what we, what we do as far as, um, you know, having a background that might be useful. I actually am a governance expert. I'm, I get a thrill from boards. I used to do a lot of training in how to be on a board um, for mainstream people, not for disabled people, um, for, for non-profits. And, uh, you know, I, I know all sorts of stuff. But when it comes to being appointed to, say, a government board or some of the boards that get paid, um, you know, they, they always think, oh, she's just not quite it, we'll appoint this other person. You know, there's this prejudice that exists. And... After a while, you just give up applying for positions because you know you'll, you'll never get one. So um, 
you know, there's still a lot of that going on and we need to be mindful of assuming that there aren't enough people out there. There are plenty of people. We are 15% of the global population. We're talking about probably less than 1% that might end up doing what, you know, leadership type work. Not all of us want to do this stuff, but for those of us that do, there are plenty who are qualified and plenty who are able to get out there and do it. So, yeah, it is about systemic barriers, some of this stuff. Do you think some of that... Do you think some of that prejudice comes from um, just that there's a there's a certain level of um, human awkwardness that we all shy away from um, that maybe it's not so you know there's not so much you know bad intention but it's just there's an awkwardness there I don't want to deal with it I'd rather just kind of brush it aside as opposed to if I only, if, you know, if you can shift the mindset just a little bit and say, look, the awkwardness is okay. Let's get over it. Let's, let's be out in the open about it and then connect as human beings that some of that would improve. Do you think that's, that's a fair statement? I reckon that's exactly it. Um, You know, sometimes we're just a bit confronting for people. Um, Most people haven't been around people like you or me, Gustavo, you know, we both come with a bit of hardware Yep. Um, as I as I call it, um, and the first time we turn up in a room, people go oh, and and it's that you know um, a huge chunk of communication is that first one percent of first impressions, and so first impressions, particularly for those of us who are visibly disabled, um, we are very confronting. If we have a communication barrier, or we are deaf or hard of hearing or blind or vision impaired, people have to adjust to to actually work with us. And that's, people don't like change. So we're confronting. People have to do things differently. But hey, guess what? We have to do things differently if we want to actually be inclusive of marginalised people generally. If we want to work with First Nations peoples or people of colour or people of diverse genders or LGBTIQ people, we adjust how we operate. Yeah. Well, let's just do it with disabled people as well. Um, it, is, it is about the fact that we are still so rare, so unusual in some of these forums, um, these decision-making rooms, these places of power, that when we do turn up, we are very confronting. We, we, we throw people out. Um, we make them feel very awkward. And, and very uncomfortable. So they don't automatically think about including us. They don't automatically look around the room when they're sitting there and say, who's missing? Oh, we don't have any disabled people. It's easier to forget about us than it is to include us. Yeah, it is about being awkward. And so what do you think we can do as as people who identify as disabled to to help you know basically get get people to get past that awkwardness what are what are what are some of the most effective strategies that you've found in those in those places of power i know there's still a lot of work we're still not there yet but what has been effective for you uh, the first thing i do is i it's not my job to make other people comfortable um, it's it's actually their problem, not mine. Um, so I I don't. <laughs> so what I do is, you know, I'm a nice girl, so I'll be polite. I do all of that sort of stuff. Um, but I'm not going to um, hide my disability. I can't anyway, but I'm not going to hide my disability. I'm not going to pretend it's not there. I'm certainly not going to um, stop talking about it because I'm there to talk about it, uh, not about me, but about disability generally. Um, what I do is, uh, and what I think we all need to do is, is just get in the room. Um, it's, it's the one big answer that I've come up with. It's, it's how to be a good activist, but it's also how to, how to make the change in the disability space. We need to be in the room. And we can't just have the one token person. 
we need to be that 15 to 20% of the room that we are in the population. When we're there in numbers, um, nobody will notice as much. We won't be so confronting. Um, it will be more a regular part of what the, the community looks like. So it is about getting out there and getting in the room and making sure we're there. Um, that said, we need to do it in a way, well, actually, we can't prescribe how people are going to get in the room. Just get in the room, you know. <laughs> um, I, I have had people say to me, oh, we need to make sure the right people get elected, Christina. I say, well, what's your version of right and is it the same as my version of right? <laughs> so, you know, there'll be people from all parts of the political spectrum. There'll be people who are, um, you know, and I've had this where I've turned up, you know, with another, another colleague from the disability community only to discover that they're appallingly racist and I'm thinking, cringe. Um, hey, you know, we are the largest minority on the planet. We're going to cover everything. So we need to be in the room. Sometimes we'll be the incredibly right-wing people. Sometimes we'll be the incredibly left-wing people. Sometimes we'll be the person with the most knowledge. Sometimes we'll be there, um, you know, as someone with experience, personal experience. It doesn't matter. What we actually need is numbers in the room because that changes the conversation. And one of the things I discovered at the United Nations when I was working there, when I was the only evidently disabled person in the room, um, because my work at the UN has been around gender, not around disability. Um, people can't ignore you when you're there. The, mi the minute you've got someone in the room, they have to change their language. They have to actually start remembering that you exist. And I've, I've witnessed this when I've been working intersectionally with um, with people of colour and First Nations peoples is, you know, and I'm not suggesting it doesn't happen, it does still happen, but there's less openly racist language. People are a bit more mindful of how they talk. So we need to be in the room. If you have two people on a board, two disabled people on a board, that's going to change the conversation. And it's not just about ableist language and, and not ableist language. It's actually about the experiences, the perspectives, the way people think. It's going to shift the ground in the same way that we know that it has for other minority groups and women being in the room. So, And when I use the term women, I might point out I include non-binary and feminine identifying folk in that term. So it's, you know, we, we shift the ground by being there. When we're not there, the conversation becomes more well, narrower. Because we're such a minority right now in those spaces, um, and you've been in some of those spaces, do you feel any um, additional sense of responsibility to be, you know, that much more excellent, that much more, that much more knowledgeable, that much more impressive? Because I know that I, I, I would have that tendency if, if I was in that if I was in that situation? Um, probably not, I guess. Um, I guess some of that is because I trust in my own skill base. So, I, you know, I come with a, a fairly big toolbox full of, you know, it's not just something I carry anymore. It's probably a thing on wheels that comes behind me. But, um, you know, because I carry a fairly large toolkit with me that has a lot of skill set, a lot of expertise, I am skilled up to be in the spaces that I'm in. Um, I wasn't always that way, you know. You've got to get there by practice, um, so start practising. Start practising. Um, you know, I do this with media training. You don't, you don't go straight for national television. You start by talking to local community and local newspapers, local community radio and local newspapers, and, and build your way up. Um, get better at it. Practice. Um, you don't start on a, a, a you know, a a Fortune 500 board um, to start with, you actually start on the local community board, the non-profit, you know, it's, or the school, you, you, you do it that way. So it's the same thing, work your way up. Um, but trust in the skills that you've got. We all have them. Um, we're, we're often really big on the fact that, you know, just because we're disabled doesn't mean we're not able to follow a conversation and ask a decent question. 
And that's a big chunk of what governance is about, is, hello, why are we talking like this? Shouldn't we be caring about that? Um, you know, decision-making is often in that. So, yeah, you don't you don't start at the top. You start and work your way. And And so I haven't ever felt... I mean, the first time you go into a bigger forum, there's a certain amount of, whoa, here I am. <laughs> um, but you have to trust in your skill base. You have to trust that you've been trained and that you know what you're doing. Um, be, be confident and, and speak for yourself. Um, something we have at the Disability Leadership Institute, uh, it, it's a little game that we all play uh, in our member groups and our networking groups. Um, is the sorry jar. And every time someone says sorry, they have to put five cents in the jar. Now, I'll just point out it's all virtual, so there's no actual money going anywhere. Um, although I understand some people have their own jars on their own shelves now at home. But we apologise a lot before we open our mouths in the disability community. And we need to stop doing that. We're just as experienced and just as skilled up as anyone else in the population. They're all needing to start at the bottom and work their way up as well. You know, and some of them, let me tell you, they never achieve anything. <laughs> some of them, a lot of them never, never get beyond a certain level because they don't have what it takes. Um, you know, that's okay. Um, it, it's only a very small proportion of the population, less than 10% probably less than 5%, that end up in very senior leadership positions. So, you know, give yourself a break um, and, and take your time. And remember that you wouldn't be doing this. You wouldn't have been sent into that forum. You wouldn't have been asked to be there if you actually weren't up to being there, if you didn't have what it takes to be there. I think, I think that's terrific advice. And that the, you're completely right about the sorry jar. I, I, my, my experience, and I know it comes from, I think we should, we should do another episode as well. And I want to be respectful of your time, but there's, there's so much to talk about is there's for me in my experience, there was always that sense of overcoming. There was always that sense of, you know, I have to be, I have to be so good that they can't ignore me. I have to be, I have to go above and beyond what most people do in order to prove that I belong. And even though that's gone away for me professionally now, those experiences still linger inside of me and, and they pop up here and there. You bet. And, and we all, we all encounter that. Um, you know, it's something I've really, um, grown to love about the disability community that I'm part of is how we embrace our disabilities. Um, you know, sure, acquiring a disability isn't something that you would go out and ask for, but the opportunities, the people that I've met, um, I wouldn't have had any of that if, if I wasn't part of this community, and I love it to bits. Um, one of the things we know is we don't you know, we don't overcome our disabilities. They're there. You know, you're not going to wake up tomorrow and suddenly it's gone. Um, so one of the things that we talk about as well at the DLI is how we use our disabilities as part of our leadership work, how we embrace it as an asset, because it is. It gives you a perspective. It gives you an angle on life. Um, it gives you experiences and it certainly gives you a, a layer of uh, not all of us, but many of us, a layer of empathy, of ability that we would not otherwise have. And for many of us, I, think, I, I sometimes lie there in bed in the morning and think, goodness me, what more would I do? Like, if I can do all of this while I'm disabled and living on all the drugs and in a lot of pain, what would I be like if I wasn't? You know, <laughs> like, what would I be like if I wasn't on all the drugs, didn't live in pain all the time? My goodness. Um, and you know, if you think you're a scary person at the moment, it's um, it's even more scary. I even scare myself sometimes in thinking, what would I be like if I wasn't like that? I don't think like that very often. Um, I actually don't need to um, because I'm, I've got a good enough life the way I am. I'm very privileged. Um, you know, for a start, I, 
you know, a white person. So, you know, that brings enormous privilege. But I live in a country that has privilege. Um, I I have employment. I have created um, a, a life for myself. And, uh, you know, all of that privilege is something that, that makes my life incredibly enjoyable, even though there's some really big challenges sitting there. Um, I I would not be without this community. I don't need to push my disability to one side. I don't need to pretend it's not there. Um, I can actually use it. And I want others to be in the same position. Um, I'm not going to crusade on that. I'm not going to tell people how to be disabled. It's your disability. You do it for yourself. Um, but I certainly know for me, um, it's it's something that I've come to value enormously is the opportunities that I've been given as a result of this and the people that I've met and the change that I've been able to make. You know, I, I really value it. And I think it's it's interesting that, you know, there are people who would say, oh, I couldn't imagine anything worse, I'd rather die. And I think, well, you're the kind of person I don't want to be. You know, you you think that life is about this and that any any other version of life is is not worth living. I'm actually someone who I've I've been very fortunate to work in the community sector, the nonprofit sector, with an incredible diversity of people. And then I'm part of the disability community, which means we also have we're the most intersectional community there is. We've got this huge range of people in all sorts of places. Um, I would not want to be without it. I just can't imagine living without that. It's um it's so rich and the diversity is 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 just the most wonderful thing. The different experiences, the different perspectives, even the different types of disabilities we've got and what that means about how we approach things. That's fantastic. You know, it's um every day is a challenge. Every day is about listening and about learning and about um about coming across something in a way that you never would have expected to come across it. And it's just incredibly valuable, which is why we need to be in leadership because actually we, we've got all of that, you know. <laughs> so, um, and you know, I, would, the, I, would, I would venture to add that some, some of the other skills that we bring to the table, problem solving. Oh, that one. Yes. Right. I think, I think adaptability. We talk, you know, we, we hear all the time about, uh, you know, evolution and how the human race, if we're to survive and thrive, we have to be able to adapt. We have to be able to evolve. Who's done it better than us? Exactly. We're, we are some of the most resilient people I've ever met. Um, problem solving, lateral thinking, flexibility. Um, there's a lot you can do with cable ties and wire. Yeah. And um Apparently, and I, you know, this is an actual article um, that I read in Harvard Business. We are ten percent more innovative in the workplace than other workers. You want That's innovation crazy. and agility in your workforce? Why wouldn't you want us in there? You know, yeah. um, and look who's actually was ready for the pandemic and ready for lockdown. Who are the people who are experts in working remotely? You know, it's yep. <laughs> where we are the people who who are innovators. Um, we're incredibly flexible. We know how to come around a problem and come at it from a different angle. It's, it's amazing stuff. Um, I love all of that. And one of the things I most enjoy in life is, is, um, is discussion with other disabled people um, when we're working through something, you know, that collaborative design discussion type um, it's just so invigorating. Uh, I, I just get a real buzz out of that stuff. And I, I think, wow, who wouldn't want a piece of this? I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, my, my last question for you, Christina, is what did I miss that we didn't talk about <laughs> that you feel is important? Oh, look, there's, there's plenty, Gustavo. And, you know, yes, let's, let's acknowledge this could be the first of many conversations. Um, I think something that I've really loved about moving into the leadership space has been the recognition that we do leadership differently. We certainly do it the same, but we do it differently. <laughs> now, that sounds a bit, you know, a bit like a, a conflict of, um, you know, an oxymoron, but it's actually not. Um, the, what I mean by that is um, 
we are coming from a different perspective with skills. And one of the things that I have most enjoyed about the last five years has been developing leadership development programs that aren't just about leadership. They're actually also about how do we work about embracing our disability, about using our disabilities and putting those two together. And I mean, I know that this is the kind of first time it's happened globally that that work's been done. Um, Others are certainly looking at it and I'm starting to um, be asked to write more papers and speak at conferences and things. But um, the the ability to put those things together and to to actually see what it's producing, to watch the people um, who have been around the Disability Leadership Institute over the last five years, um, and there are many, many hundreds of them, and to see what they're now achieving. Um, it just makes my heart sing, and I feel like I can I can sit back a bit and observe now. Um, I'm still obviously actively engaged, and I do a lot of coaching and, and leadership work and, and run the programs, but I don't have to be the person on the front line anymore. I can watch people um, that I've that I've supported, that I've known and loved for years, now getting out there and changing the world and being incredibly effective people, and it's fantastic. It's brilliant. Um, so I, I love that aspect of leadership, that that element of building others, of supporting others to do their work well. So, yeah, there's so much joy in what we do. That has to be enormously satisfying. I can't, I can't imagine that, but I would like to. I, I think that's, and the, it shows, it shows in the way you speak and the way you communicate it because you're not doing this. Um, for your own benefit, for your own glory, you can see that it's a it's a it's a selfless selfless act that brings you joy. If it was about me, I'd still be out there, <laughs> and, yep. and I'm very happy not to be. Um, no, I love this community, and this is for all of you guys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's what I've got to give. I've got skills in this area. Um, I come from a background in adult leadership development. What can I give you? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you yeah. so much, Christina. So where can people find you? Where can people get in touch? Where can people sign up to uh, become leaders? At the um, and there, there is a free membership available. So you can sign up for free. It doesn't matter where you are on the planet. Um, go to disabilityleaders.com.au and you'll find everything about us there. Fantastic. Thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. This was a fantastic conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure, Gustavo, and I look forward to our next one. Absolutely.